Hello, this is Charles Wiz, and this is Two Teachers Talking, episode 153. And today, Tony, or not just today, but for the last week or two or so, I don't even know how long, Tony's been in Chicago and kind of taking time off and doing some business. And today I am joined by, uh, what's a wonderful thing to say, a colleague, friend, mentor, and just all around wonderful person, Narita Rand, who I teach with at Yokohama National University, although we're on other sides of the campus. And Nerida is here because Nerida brings a very interesting perspective, I think, to teaching. Her background is in improvisation or improv. And what we want to do today is kind of explore how that background and how that kind of knowledge and awareness and the attitude that comes with that gets brought into a classroom and how Nerida really makes things work. And I think uh, people will find it very interesting, enjoyable, and enlightening. So Nerida, welcome to the show. It's fun to do this. I'm really looking forward to trying to live up to that introduction. Ha, yes, I know. It's always like, uh, yeah, right, failure to live up to expectations. So Nerida, why don't you just uh, tell us a little bit about yourself? Okay. In one sentence or less, it's the famous line from uh, the newsroom, right? Isn't that it? Yeah, I think yeah, so. Me, okay. Me, one sentence. Okay. Um, that's not going to happen, but um, hello, I'm Australian. Uh, how did I end up in Japan? I was one of those drama kids whose parents put a lot of effort into making sure that I stayed at school, got a day job, and never, 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 ever ran off to be on the stage. Uh, so when I turned up in Japan in 97 for a f- three-year contract at Keio Shonan Fujisawa High School, I brought my drama hobby with me. And because I was relatively settled for the first time, started this thing called improvisation that I'd always been interested in. Um, I also went to drama school here, which is a, another story. But while I was doing these things, I realized that teaching and acting, specifically improvisation, weren't necessarily two different things. They were very, very similar, and I don't just mean the performative aspect of them. So my teaching and my my improvisation, my drama, are, are one thing for me now. I can't separate them. I teach drama or I teach all of my academic subjects using improvisation, and I run my classroom on an improvisational mindset. Um <sighs> Since 2004, <laughs> I've been at Yokohama with Charles. And well, you were there before me. I was there before, before you. Okay. So yes. I've been at Yokohama yeah. since 2004, and somewhere along the way, that became with Charles. But um, I also act and improvise here in Japan. So despite my mother's best intentions, I have stayed in school and got a day job, but I also very definitely ran away and I'm on the stage. So, Charles, yes, I'm here tonight to talk about how I do it all. Hello. Okay. Yeah, I think <laughs> that's an interesting thing, you know, how that you can't tell the difference. So I think a good place to start is I think I know what improv is, you know, um, but why don't you give um, – uh, kind of like a definition, explanation, example, so that we have a clearer, you know, kind of like benchmark from which to work from. I will do that, I promise. But what I wanted to do tonight, because this is a, a thing that really interests me, is start by asking you what you think it is. No, I don't want to do that. I'm on the one asking the questions here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, is there any way to win on this? Okay, so, right. So improvisation, improv, mm-hmm. seems to me basically the uh, – I don't know whether – what would we call it? Um, a system, a process, procedure, a way of being, a way of interacting, a way of engaging, whereby the outcome is not predetermined and that every step along the way is something that I'm doing with someone else or a 
group of people or could be with the classroom because again I do kind of very much agree with you about that you know, mm-hmm. the acting kind of improv thing right. and that it's basically rolling or with the punches going with whatever seems to be appearing um, you know spontaneously and whatever seems to be emerging and moving that forward in a way that the other people can also move it forward You've got that down. You don't need me. I'm going home now. Okay. Well, well actually, no, I am home. home. I am so. home. <laughs> that's actually, yeah, that's that's improvisation. Um, okay. I Before I give you my definition, I'd like to share the, the best definition I got from a student in a reflective essay. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to edit this out in terms of bad language but one of the students wrote in her essay, I started this semester defining improv as a close synonym to BSing. Okay. And I thought that was pretty funny because she wrote the full word out. But um, a lot of people think it is BSing and making stuff up to the point where it's got to be funny or you're just pulling it out of nowhere. Uh, my favorite definition of improvisation, and there are many, is chaos within structure. And people often see the chaos but don't realize that the chaos happens because there is a structure that makes it possible. My favorite way of explaining it is a sports analogy. If you want to play the game, you have to practice the game and you have to know the rules. You have to sharpen your skills. You also have to work on your teamwork. You have to know, apart from things like which way the ball is coming from, to really thrash an analogy, you have to know what to do with the ball when you get it. And you also know who the best person is to take that ball from you. And then when you get out on the playing field, you don't know what's going to happen in the game. You don't know whether you're even going to get the ball that day. You don't know what's going to happen, but you do know that whatever happens, you've practiced and you, you, to a certain degree, you've got it. And if you don't got it, then your team's got you. And that's how the game happens. And to me, that's improv. You go in there winging it and responding to what happens and also making things happen knowing that these spontaneous acts exist and succeed within a framework of everybody agreeing. I nearly said rules, but um, one of my favourite improv maxims is that there are no rules, there are only tools. Yeah, I love that. When you said that the other day, I was just like... (laughs) I was just like, that's great. That's I love incredible. It. Okay. So, <clears throat> excuse me. So yes. you've got this thing of improv and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I kind of have talked about how, you know, teaching is an art and a science in certain ways. Yes. And that I, I, I see as, as I have a general idea of what I want to do when I go into the classroom. And then right. I, I really like to let things happen and, you know, run with things rather than because mm-hmm. I can't go into a planned out classroom. But let's talk about how do okay, there's certain rules in improv. Um, there are certain tools. And in I think, improv. That, yeah, t- there's, t- there's certain tools, not rules. There's certain tools in improv, yeah. That in one sense really uh, fits very well with teaching, but in mm-hmm. another sense kind of is a little bit contradictory. And I think this is where um, I'm really interested in finding out how you handle this. So the rule that I understand is that whenever someone takes a turn right. in an improv, you cannot negate what they've said. You can't say no. You have to build upon what they've done. Ah, yes. Right. Mm-hmm. And what I'm wondering is what happens? How do you handle that when a student's going or students are going mm-hmm. off in the wrong direction? I understand of like, you know, moving forward when everything's going in the direction where you think learning's happening and students are on task and they're moving forward and they're making gains. But what happens when what they're doing isn't really fitting into the, you know, the goals that, you know, 
you want to achieve in that lesson or in the classroom? How do you handle – that seems to me like a dichotomy, or am I wrong, or am I oversimplifying? No, no, no. Uh, okay, let's start first with the, the tenet that you are discussing, which um, is most commonly referred to as the concept of yes and. You yes what's happening. Rather than no but. Yeah, or just or just <laughs> no. no, 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 just no. I'm not going to. I'm going to take the ball and I'm not going to pass it to anybody. And the answer is no. Um, okay, let's talk. I want to talk first about what that means or what it can mean. There's a lot of debate about it. Um, it doesn't mean that you have to agree with everything. It means okay. that you accept, and that's different. So it's a mindset of, okay, so for example, um, you set students up for an activity. Walk around the groups and realize that one group is not doing the activity as it was set up. Okay, so a normal day in the classroom. <laughs> normal day in the classroom. Um, I know this is really hard to imagine, but try try and keep up. Um, looking, okay. looking at the activity, the activity had a purpose. And rather than disrupt them, spend time when they should be doing the thing, by stopping to explain and redirect them and getting them flustered because students hate to have got it wrong and all of their everybody all the other groups will stop and look at them being corrected yes ending is a judgment of okay this is not as i described it the question i ask myself is is it nevertheless fulfilling the goals of what the original activity was and if it is let them go because that's more valuable than stopping and telling them they're wrong. And if it's not? And if it's not, um, it's, it's funny. You've got to be really careful not to come across as molly coddling when you do this. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to answer that with a slight, slight of a slight tangent. There are occasionally students who will really, really, really cling to the idea of thinking things through and not being prepared to wing it because they've been trained their whole life in the education system to think, and that's been rewarded. And the way to help them around that is not to tell them to stop thinking because that's a really good way to freak a student out, especially an Asian one comment on the fact that their thinking is a really good skill and then tell them you're going to teach them another skill and broaden their skill base. Hmm. Which comes back to your question. If they are not achieving the goal, stop them. Comment on the whatever it is they're doing because pretty much if whatever they're doing has kept them occupied, it's something that serves some purpose even if it's not the purpose you had in mind and well, say, problem, okay, I'm that's sorry. okay. Let's, let's look at that's let's go. And it's really hard after years of, it's really hard to avoid words like no. Let's look at what you're doing in a slightly different way. How about you try it this way? How does that change it for you? Okay, so so seems- yes, yes, I see what you're doing, and it could be improved by doing it this way. So that seems more kind of like some feedback styles, ways of communicating hmm. to the students. Yeah. But what I, I'm really curious about, uh, and the thing that really is just intriguing to me, is how you know what you do as an improv artist, as someone who's doing improv. Mm-hmm. How is that going to be different from, let's say, what I'm doing in the classroom? Now, I have certain ideas. For example, I I don't believe in correcting my students, and uh, you know, when they're doing group work, for example, right. um, 
I don't correct them because it's like, this is the time where they're practicing and exploring and I want them to be doing the improv improvisational kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And so there's that kind of similarity. But what I'm wondering is how is it really, does it affect you and, or how do you think as being a teacher and educator and we should mention, by the way, Narita, that you are also teaching a high school class right now. Yes, I am. Which is like pretty amazing. And then you're teaching graduate school classes with international students, I think, primarily. I think I'm and teaching pretty much the whole higher end now. I'm teaching senior high school undergraduates and, and graduate students, okay. yes. Mm -hmm. So how do you think someone who comes from my background – I have a um, background where I was you know, working in a peer counseling program. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, very similar things, you know, open-ended questions, moving things forward, you know, creating um, safe places and stuff. But how do you really think that that improv background kind of gives you a different view or a different way of seeing things? And then if that's true, mm -hmm. where would somebody without an improv background, you know, somebody who's more in a traditional educator mindset, um, where would they, how would they run with that? What do you think? If you've there, that's there's two parts to that. If you've got um, a background in peer counselling or any kind of counselling or listening job, if you'll pardon the phrase, I think you're already on an improv spectrum. Okay, let me just interrupt you for a second. But mm -hmm. I think I don't. I haven't met anyone else who has done any peer counselling work or actually, you know, worked like worked. I were used to work with at risk youth. Okay. The people I work with are basically, you know, um, EFL specialists or okay. educators or researchers. So I'm mm -hmm. talking about those kinds of people, okay? People who okay. really um, did not get any kind of specific training in listening or, you know, all the steps for, um, you know, like crisis intervention, et cetera, et cetera. That's what I'm talking about. Not people like me so much, but okay. let's say people who really don't have the background, who have a more traditional, let's say, EFL or education background. Uh, improvisation techniques and improvisational thinking are very much a burgeoning market now in the training of people like academics, counsellors, health workers, people in conflict resolution, medical practitioners. And it's not as if improvisers, improvisers are going into hospitals and teaching the doctors to be okay with making mistakes um, and saying yes and as you cut off the wrong limb. Uh, in yeah, how do you how do you go forward with that? <laughs> it's like <laughs> yes, and um, improvisation is actually being used now to work with the people you've mentioned specifically to teach them how to listen, because um, I mean the whole one of the things I love about improvisation as opposed to scripted theater is that you can't have an, you can't have an ego in improvisation and be good at it because your job is to make the other person look good and their job is to make you look good. And that can only happen if you're really, really listening and it's training to listen and to hear without judgment. So in terms of academics and ESL specialists, taking some kind of ESL, uh, so improvisation training or even reading a book, they're academics, they can read a book. Um, there are skills in listening that I think would be the biggest takeaway for them in learning to relate to their students much better and teach them much better. Okay, well, make that concrete for me. What what listening skills are you specifically talking about? Okay. Um, 
I always love it when people get silent after I ask a question because it usually means I asked a good question. I'm tr- I'm trying to narrow it down. I'm on my answer in one sentence mission. We know it's not going to happen, but um, oh gosh, okay. There's a form of feedback that I've just taught my high school students this week, actually, and I learned this from Aretha Sills, who is the granddaughter of Viola Spolin. Who um, is who? You need uh, to. Um, an incredibly wonderful improvisational pioneer who is is my I, – I, I never met the woman, but I, I worship what she did because she – her improvisation was designed to work with um, young immigrant children in Chicago, which to me says straight away that improvisation is something that young people can do and it doesn't have – language doesn't have to be a barrier. So she's she's how I justify what I do if anybody challenges you can't do that. But the the type of uh, improvisational appropriate feedback that I learned is that you don't tell the person what you liked because that's subjective and you don't tell them what you didn't like because that's subjective. And you don't tell them what they should have done differently because, as we all know, we hate being told what we should or shouldn't do. And particularly in the classroom, um, you can watch kids really start to get defensive and close up if the teacher is telling them what they should have done differently. But ten times more if one of their classmates starts telling them what they should have done. So an example of improvisational listening is for feedback, tell them what you heard or tell them what you saw. Oh, when you used these words, I saw, I saw where your argument was going. I saw that you were very passionate when you talked about these reasons. Uh, this week I very gently said to a student, I saw that you were leaning against the wall. And she looked at me and smiled. And they can read to a certain extent that there's a little bit, they take it as either positive or negative, however they want to. But by telling them what you've heard or seen, you have to concentrate on knowing what you've heard, noticing what you've heard, and being able to give it back to them. That's kind of interesting because when um, I'm working on feedback with my students, I'm saying teaching mm-hmm. them to, or trying to help them give feedback to each other. One of the things I say is that when you say I liked it or I didn't like it or that wasn't funny or it was funny, that's a judgment. Yeah. And that feedback is actionable information. There you go. You're on and, the improv spectrum there. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's a, well, that's a spectrum I'd rather be on than a few others I've been accused of being on. <laughs> There you go. But the idea that um, you're not judging, mm-hmm. that you're getting information that you can act on and right. act upon. So I think that's – so there seems to be um, – I, I, I imagine that I, I what you're talking about just seems very close to how I approach things. Um, I know that when um, my students are going off uh, to do their uh, student teaching, mm-hmm. one of the things I always – when I go to do the observations and watch them and I ask them, as I say, you know, no internal states, don't describe internal states to me. Mm-hmm. And by that, I mean, the students are happy. The students are motivated. The students are enjoying the class. I said, that's an internal state that you have no access to. I think you and I have Tell discussed this. Tell me what yeah. you see. Mm-hmm. So I'm sorry, go ahead, please. No, I think you and I have discussed this point before. Yes. Right. Yeah. So, okay. So one thing is feedback. And I know I, um, I think I've talked to you before or mentioned this before that one of the things that affected me the most in my teaching was I was reading um, some stuff by from John Hattie where he mm-hmm. talks about the importance of feedback. He looks at what has the highest effect or the strongest effect on students. And the thing mm-hmm. that was like at the top was feedback. And I thought, oh, I have to learn how to give better feedback. And the interesting thing was I had it completely backwards. The feedback really? he was talking about is he's talking about the information you're getting from students about how they're doing, how much they're learning. 
Goodness, so feedback really on the learning process. Feedback from the students. Yeah. Feedback yeah. about what the students are doing. And I, I that was like one of those moments where I realized, well, I'm such a narcissist and ego, egotistical <laughs> maniac because my first impression was, oh, it's about my feedback to the students. I'm at the center. <laughs> it's about me, right? And then mm-hmm. when I read more, it was like, oh, man, did I get that wrong? And it was a great moment, you know, one of those moments where you kind of get to um, realign yourself, you know, kind of mm, like, oops, yeah. I think, I think it's, I got to change directions. Autopilot is now switched off. Okay. But let's talk about specific listening things. Okay. Feedback. Okay. I understand. What would you be doing in improv? Cause I, I imagine like, you know, you're really focused on the other person. That's something you mentioned, right? You're focused right, yeah. on the other person, not on yourself. What are you doing with listening? What are you listening for? How are you listening? Um, you know, um, and I'm sure that you're listening with all your senses as well, just not you yes. know, your ears. You know, so explain a little bit about that. You're what in a I classroom. Do. What I do. Yeah, you're in a classroom. Let's say you put the students to work on an activity. Mm-hmm. How are you listening? What are you doing? Where's your focus? How are you discovering what's going on? You based on the improv background. <laughs> please, please don't get me started on how hard that is right now. We're on, they're all wearing masks. Um, but I guess we should actually touch on that later. Um, what I'm it's doing actually is one of the reasons why I prefer zoom sessions. Yeah. Over face to face right now. I'm so tired of not be, being able to see people's faces. I'm sorry. I interrupted you. Please. No, 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 it's quite all right. It's yeah, it's, but we can come back to the topic of, what does improvisation add or you know to 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 a to zoom teaching environment um how would i be listening to the room watching who's moving and who's not as in who's immediately started watching who's taking their time and i know the question was listening but i it starts by watching well, that's what I meant, listening with all your senses, though. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it's also, I mean, when the things I'm going to talk about, a lot of people will probably say, well, that's not particularly improvisation. I do that in my classroom anyway. And that's my point. We do a lot of these things in improvisation as well, and it's not that different from teaching was one of the realizations I made. Watching, watching who's contributing, watching who's not contributing – watching if they're not contributing but listening and making eye contact with their group or watching if they've got their head down. Watching and listening to who are the people who put their hands up all the time. Working out what it is that I can do because I acknowledge that some students are introverted and they the fact that they are not putting their hand up doesn't mean that they don't know. So what I'm looking for is other signs from them in terms of them responding with all their senses. How are they participating in the game? Are they speaking their response? Are they writing their response? Uh, is their half-turned back a physical response? Where are all the players on my field at this time and what are they doing? So part of that is, except I think when you met me, it was just after I'd broken my foot. Um, That was probably the only time in my teaching career I've ever sat down in a classroom. I'm on my feet the entire time. And I'm moving. Even when it's not group work, they're all doing something individual, I'm moving. And I'm looking at the room and the relationships and the responses from different angles to make sure I've got it. Okay. So what's – I mean, the things you're saying seem Mm -hmm. to be very similar to what I do. Right. And so one of the things – that's all I, uh, that I'm really getting a clear case is that, as you said, that what you would do in improv is not so different from teaching in the way that we know instead of a teacher fronted classroom, right? Right. Where mm-hmm. you're just lecturing. This is where the teacher is actually really engaged with the students and is trying to really move them forward. So 
for example, give us an example of an improv technique that would help a teacher, let's say, be better at giving feedback to a student. Is there some exercise or activity you've done that, you know, has helped you or you think would help people? Apart from the one I just mentioned where you're giving them, you're telling them what you've seen rather than judging it. Right. That's, yeah. That's my, I've got to admit, that's my stock go-to because I really like that one. Well, what I meant by my question, Arida, is not, not what's a, a technique, but what's, let's say, something you do in improv, right? There's some practices, right? Or some warm-ups or something, let's say, that you would do. I'm guessing. Okay, so are you asking me about feedback from my part or things that I have the students do? Well, my question is, is there some like activity you do in an improv group? Let's say you're doing, you're working with Mm. other improv artists and there's some activity you would do that you think if teachers did that activity, that it would really help them in the classroom. So for example, you know, um, I was thinking about like jazz musicians when they really mm-hmm. have to listen to each other and have to figure out how to run, you know, understanding the chords or the scales, for example. Right. And there might be certain practices you do, right? Um, you know, constraints, limitations, for example, where um, that forces people to be more creative. But what I'm curious, is there like some, right, activities or exercises you've done in improv that, um, you know, you say, hey, Charles, if you do this and you practice doing this, you're going to be better in the classroom. Okay. How's that sound? Okay. Um, this isn't necessarily – this is giving feedback to yourself. And I picked this up from an uh, um, an improvisation. I remember, I remember the moment where I saw what she was doing and went, oh, I can steal that. Her class plans are on two pages. And on the left-hand page, she has her, she had her entire lesson planned out in, in post-it notes. And as she finished something, she moved it to the right page. And occasionally I could see her looking at the room, looking at her post-it notes, moving the order of them around or taking one out of the, the, the running order altogether. So reacting to what was happening in the room, she was adjusting the plan that she had and the order that she planned and the contents that she planned for that particular group at that time. So she was constantly giving herself feedback on what she had planned to do and whether it was working in that moment. And being in the moment is another um, improv axiom that I think is really, really good one for teachers to keep in mind. Mm-hmm. What is happening right now? Yeah, usually I'm trying to figure out how can I be in their moment, not my moment, because they're very different <laughs> worlds and experiences i'm like this is a really funny joke i don't understand why nobody's laughing (laughs) (laughs) no that's definitely that's definitely your moment that's that's your moment that's that's my moment not their moment right and what i'm trying to say is i'm trying to figure out why they they don't find it funny okay so uh, (laughs) that's the story of my life though all right so what is okay so you're doing improv you Mm -hmm. go in you're working with some people how would you guys warm up Give us an idea of like, because for example, when I go into a classroom, I kind of have to warm this classroom up, right? We have little warm up activities, get everybody moving, getting them started, mm-hmm. getting them, you know, more set for things. Um, what would happen in an improv group? How many people would be there and what would happen? Okay, let me ask, are you talking about an improv group or a standard ESL classroom in which I'm using improv techniques? Because they'd be slightly no, different. the former, not the latter. Okay. What would so happen? I, Tell us what would happen in an actual, like, you know, when you're working with other improv artists. Uh, <laughs> uh the, the the first thing that comes very clearly to mind if you walk if you walk into a classroom if the students walk into a classroom they the first thing they'll do is sit on a chair 
And if you, you're in an improv group, they'll be up and moving. Okay, it's start time. We're on our feet. What do we do now? So you've already got them on their feet. Uh, getting them to listen to each other. It may either be a physical form of listening or a verbal kind of listening. Very common ones are word association games. So if I say cat, what do you think of? Helmet. Now, I don't know why the heck you said helmet, but since I couldn't predict helmet, I had to wait to what you, for what you said and couldn't pr- predict my own answer and be standing by. So if you say helmet, I say baseball bat. And I say hot dog. Ketchup. Leftovers. <laughs> How far are we going to go with this? 25. 25. We have to do 25 of these? No, 25 is my response to leftovers. Oh, I thought that was 25 more. Okay, but so... All right. So the thing is so, you you have to listen. You have to listen. And from wherever you've come in the outside, the point is in the classroom. And this works in it. This is the same for an ESL classroom. Being in this place now, you've got to start putting whatever's up behind you, behind you, and focusing on the people with you and in the group and listening. So something like a word association game or even passing the clap. And I won't clap because it'll probably explode the microphone. But um, doing something where I need a word from you so that I can contribute my bit. Do you want another one? Yeah, sure. Okay, let's play games. Um, all right, this is this is called One Word Story. We're going to tell a story. Oh, I used to do this with my students. Okay. Um, actually, the easier version is one sentence. You tell, you tell me the start of story and I'll add the next sentence. You add a sentence. Wait, you think the one sentence is easier than the one word? Now, with improvisers, it's about 50-50. With ESL students, they'll get very, very caught up on worrying about whether they've come back with the correct grammar. So, yeah, that's what I was going to think is that word by word by word would be easier. It depends on the level of your students. Right. Exactly. Of course, it's always, you know, dependent upon those kinds of variables. Yeah. Okay. Any activity where I need to listen to you to know what my bit is. Okay. That's an interesting – okay, that's a very nice specific thing. So this it's like a gap activity, in other words, hmm. or some kind of task, right, where the the student can't move forward unless they've actually listened and paid attention to right. the partner or the other people in the group. Yes. So that might be a re- – that's a very, very good metric for measuring um, activity effectiveness, right? Is, yeah. Does it require? Okay, so we have something very concrete now, right? Mm-hmm. What does very concrete mean, though? We have something concrete. Okay. We have something to start with. <laughs> All right. So requiring that the students, when they, they're, for their turn, for their turn taking, they can't move forward mm-hmm. without, without each other yeah. listening, which is, again, interesting for me because um, I teach my students echo questions and the importance of echo questions and follow up questions. Mm-hmm. Right. The follow up right. question is: You have to ask something about what the person has said. So I, I feel like I've, I'm I'm kind of doing this right. Yes. No. Okay. <laughs> what I you are now here's here's a tip for you from from the in, from the improv world that I think could be picked up a lot more in ESL. And again, particularly with students who are obsessed on must having to have the right answer, or having come through education. And I was. It's not just an Asian thing been being penalized for not having the right answer. Word association game. I say apple. I say cat. You say helmet. I say baseball bat, right? Mm-hmm. That's the standard version. If I say cat and you say helmet and my brain goes, huh? Then, huh? is my answer because naturally that was my reaction to the word in listening to you. My natural reaction was ha. So that's what I give to the game. 
Huh. <laughs> so if I say was, huh, was, what do you think? Hmm. Thinking. Whoa. Roller coaster. So there's the students know that there is no wrong answer. And if their reaction is ha, huh, they're allowed to say ha. Huh. And if their reaction is I don't understand, they're allowed to say I don't understand. And that's an accepted reaction in an improv game that maybe wouldn't have a normal ESL setting wouldn't have allowed for. Yeah, that sounds like a really good idea because the students then, you're training them mm. to not worry about what they're saying. And if you don't have an answer, you're, huh, I don't know, becomes a reasonable, fair answer. Yeah. And if nothing else, bottom line, you're teaching them to be comfortable saying, I don't know. Right, which is very important. And also comfort with not, but in this situation, it's also there is no right answer. Right. And yes. that's also an, a very, you know, quite a valuable thing to help them there, adjust to. And I use that are, word very carefully. There are some answers that may be nice to be trying not to be judgmental that may get a better reaction than others, but there are no wrong answers. Mm-hmm. And there's a whole spectrum of answers that would be considered correct. So obviously we're not going to be using this technique in, for teaching grammar, are we? This technique, no, we can use other techniques. Okay. So now indulge me. How would, um, <laughs> okay. how could you use improv techniques to teach grammar where accuracy is a goal? One of the things about grammar is practice. One of the things about making something your own is, as we know, I'm preaching to the choir here, is expanding the situations in which you practice what you've got so you get outside your comfort zone and get better and broader at what you do. So, for example, um, if I wanted to teach... um, problems and solutions this this is if you do this this will happen okay have students excuse me have they can and they can come up with their own sentence pairs on one piece of paper if i go to the beach tomorrow i will get sunburned or depending on which conditional you're teaching, if I went to the beach tomorrow, I would get sunburnt. Okay. Mm-hmm. And they all write their pairs, and you put the first parts in one pile, and you put the second parts in another pile, and you the students draw one from each. So I, what I might pull out is, if I went to the beach tomorrow, my shoes wouldn't fit anymore. Because I would get too much sand between my toes. That's a lot of sand. (laughs) So it's not the most scintillating answer, but I've just put together a conditional sentence that didn't exist before and I've extended it with my own input. And I've practiced the grammar in a way that I can guarantee is that in no English language textbook that is on the market today. But I've stretched my brain a little bit. Whether I'll ever say that sentence in life is a different question. Well, there is something to be said for having students generate sentences that they'll never say outside of the classroom. (laughs) There, There is some value to that. Okay. And who are we to say they'll never say it out of the classroom? That's rather prescriptive on our part. Well, there are certain things. I'm, I'm, <laughs> there, was a, there was this one um, scene, I think, from Friends uh-huh. um, so many years ago. I remember my wife loved Friends. 
and uh, we were watching it. But it was, it was something about with um, what was the character? It was Ross, right? I, I, I yeah, I think. And um, he he had he was doing something about his Jewish background with his kid, and he was like the Hanukkah armadillo or something. And it's like, well, there's a word I never thought I'd ever utter, <laughs> you know, the yeah. Hanukkah armadillo. But I want to. Um, kind of address like a question that's kind of hanging in the background, which is okay. you go to, if I went to an improv gr- group, it would be mm-hmm. a lot of extroverted people, I'm assuming. Now that might be a stereotype. Am I correct? You would see a lot of extroverted behavior. Ah, run with that for us, please. Okay. If, if I was asked to describe, if I were asked to describe myself, I would probably say I'm an introverted person who exhibits extroverted behavior. I'm much yes. happier in my own than I am in a group. And you'd probably never know it by the way I function in public. Um, but it's funny. I was thinking about this specific question today. Um, in theory, we want everybody to participate. I think both as improvisers and as educators, we really need to think about what definition of participation and what how we are judging what is acceptable participation. Um, I had a student three years ago who was in an improv class I was teaching at the undergraduate level. It wasn't uh, using improv to teach academic English it was an improv class and this girl never got up and she sat staring and she'd occasionally occasionally wander on the stage but not say anything and I thought this is one surly child I'm not sure what I'm dealing with here and she got up one day and, and did something so even though I try not to judge I figured something encouraging in this particular instance would be helpful so I sent her a quick message I really like what you did today and I got this long missive back about how she had massive anxiety attacks and hated standing up in front of people and didn't like speaking in front of people and today was one of the days where she felt like she could get up and actually speak and those two things didn't often happen at the same time for her and I thought oh lord and I really hated myself for not picking up what, that it was actually a thing with her, not just attitude. But well, I realized the- that she, she'd signed up for the class. She'd read the syllabus and, sa- and th- said to herself, I want to go take this class. So I had to yes and that. Yes, she wants to take this class and she has massive anxiety attacks and she doesn't like to stand up in front of people. So we pulled out all of the games where you don't have to stand up in front of people or games where you can go on stage and not say anything. And there's a whole bunch of those. And either in, I mean, they work as improv. If you're trying to think of them and consider their value in a language classroom, they're allowing the students to work on the other aspects of language. But we worked out this whole, and it was a performance class. Her team worked with her, and because they never knew how she was going to be on that day, whether she was going to be, it was a talk day for her, they became much better listeners. In fact, I think that team were the best listeners I've ever trained because they were paying attention to making this team member they had look good. And sometimes she didn't speak. Sometimes she didn't even get on stage. She would sit on the floor with the audience and she would be the narrator for what was happening on stage. And those are all totally acceptable improv games. And she found her place as the most introverted child I've ever come across in my teaching career. Hmm. Yeah, well, I think it's Sartre who said that hell is other people. And for mm. an introvert, I think hell is group work. The minute she said, um, the minute I, re- I acknowledged she had chosen the class, 
I knew she wanted something and it was my job to find it for her. And there are so many improv games. Um, you know. Give us a couple. Give us a couple of improv games that <sighs> would, would have worked with a student like that. Okay. So... Um, well, I'm thinking of some of the games she worked on. One of them is called Small Voice. So a person is walking along the street and they hear a little voice and they're having this conversation with this little voice that they can't see. And sh- you could sit down and be the little voice and you're actually doing it from the audience. So nobody's ever looking at you. They can't even, all they can see is the back of your head. Um... If you limit the number of words that an improviser or a student can say, you can ask them to do a scene or an improvisation. Um, If you or I were going on with our garrulous tendencies, um, a director who wanted us to work on our other skills would say to you or me, okay, Nerida and Charles, you're only allowed to say three words at a time. So I say my three words and I'm not allowed to say anything else till someone else has spoken. So I have to be pithy, which is a skill I could work on. With an introverted person, if you say to them, you only have to say two words. A lot of I've I've a lot of kids can work with that. As long as I'm on stage doing something, and if I don't feel comfortable, I can turn my back to the audience. I can go on to the scene and not have to speak at all. That's interesting because what would be a constraint that might be difficult, you can only say three words, mm-hmm. might be something like very liberating for a student. I only have to utter three words at a time. Yeah. I can do that. Mm-hmm. The thing I'm getting from you, Narita, is that there's an openness um, right. to improv, which is like, again, as you said, like, don't judge, right? That just look at what's happening and be accepting of what people are doing and that there's a reason there. Because I was thinking about that student you were talking about, right? The one who was very introverted and that we have such little knowledge about why our students are there, what they're doing, what they're thinking. Yeah. Right. And it's always good to you know, give them the benefit of a doubt, but I find that difficult sometimes. Oh, I know. I know. Okay. So this this world of improv, right, that mm-hmm. you come from, it's very open. It's very accepting. You go in and there's like a situation's not a negative. It's an opportunity. Right. So the fact that the student doesn't want to talk or doesn't want to get up on the stage, even though it's an, an improv class, that's not something that you say, ah, what's wrong with the student, actually? By the the ethos, for lack of a better word, of improv would be, how can we run with this? How can, how we, can we run with this? How and can as we I said, it, it made her group such better listeners. Because they had to run with it. Because they had to run with it as well. So do you think those – okay, this, these are advanced classes, I'm assuming. This particular class, yes. But okay. I also run improv classes at a level for students who cannot string a coherent sentence together, and I just make a coherent sentence not one of the course prerequisites. They must be having a lot of fun then. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So the big takeaway here, mm-hmm. the big takeaway – is that always ask yourself as as you're in the classroom, because I I, I tend to do a lot of, um, you know, I have general ideas. I know where I want the class to go, but I'm Mm -hmm. really happy when things occur in the classroom that let me like, ah, I didn't think about doing this. Let me try this. Yeah. And moving with things. But the idea that Rather than, let's say, for example, for me getting frustrated or upset that my students are not on task, not doing what I want them to do, the the big takeaway here, I guess, from the improv is like, what can I do with this? How can I use it? Mm. Okay, the students are not 
on task, they're not talking with each other. Okay, maybe I want them to write messages to each other. Maybe I want them to act things out. Maybe I want them to pantomime. In other words, there's like, in that situation is that rather than I should, rather than being upset or frustrated, I should just start trying different kinds of things to see if they work and be comfortable with that. Is that something? Yeah, yeah. Um, to come back to my original comment about the similarities that I see between teaching and performing, um, when I trained as a director, I was taught to examine a text from the point of view of how come and so what. And I find that that's, number one, that's a really, really good basis on which to teach a critical thinking class. But, and the extension of that is how come, so what, and the improv question is what if. So those are the three questions I'm always asking myself as in, in the classroom. So when I see the group that's not engaging or they've gone in a different direction, how come? So what? And then what if? And again, this is another thing that I picked up from Spolin, but her, from Viola Spolin, her approach was always, if there's something that's not working, give an activity that will fix the problem. And that's really helped me reduce my teacher talking time. It's like, okay, what can I get them to do that will fix the thing that's not working for them? And to do that, you have to work out how come it's happening and what are the implications of that? That's nice. I wish usually I thought I of always it. Tell yes. my, usually I tell my students, I don't want to work. I want you to work. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's the whole basis of my teaching is that, you know, you're the ones who are supposed to be doing the work, not me. Yeah. But I, I will often say, look, I don't need English practice. You do. Yeah. I say I'm already a fluent speaker. <laughs> God, you I don't. don't need to talk more. Yes. Well, no, I, I'm a, not a fluent English speaker. I'm American, right? So, okay. I think that's a, maybe a good place to wrap up for right now, Narita. Okay. Um, and so, what do you think? Have I have I um, recruited you to the cause? I know I was already in it. I think based on what you've said. Mm-hmm. I don't think. I mean, you know, what, come on, me- come on over. Take that step to the dark side. Uh. That's right. Luke, I am your father. <laughs> Do you remember that Austin Powers scene in the second Austin Powers where uh, Dr. Evil says to Austin, he goes, Austin, I am your father. And Austin says, really? <laughs> Dr. Evil says, no, I can't back that up. <laughs> it was a great line. But okay, so there's the big takeaway again for mm-hmm. me is this that what your improv is, is there's so much that seems overlap with how I approach, approach teaching. Yeah. Um, and that most of the teachers I know have similar values and attitudes so that the, the good thing is, is that people maybe want to, instead of, you know, pick up a teaching text, a, te- a book mm. on teaching or watching some YouTubes about teaching, go get a book or watch some u- videos on improv and see how you can use that to improve your own, you know, teaching skills or, get some ideas for activities to bring into a classroom because it seems to all fit in really nicely. The, there are some wonderful people at the top of their game in improv. And as soon as you say improvisation, a lot of people will say either whose line is it anyway, or Robin Williams. And Mm -hmm. the trouble with genius like that is that it does convince people that improvisation is something that they can't do. But I come back to my point that I made earlier that a lot of improvisation was designed as games for children whose native language wasn't necessarily English. And at the end of the day, they're all games and they are accessible to teachers. Go pick up a book. There is an increasing number of books about games and improvisation in teaching and learning. And, um, Anybody who's got half a brain, which is most teachers, um, if they've got the courage, give it a go because there's no wrong answer. Okay. Give it a go. All right. 
Okay, so let's stop at that point. Okay, Nerida, okay. thank you very much for your time. And thank you very about, much for letting me talk about something I'm very passionate about. Yes, that passion does come through. Okay, all right, so this is Two Teachers Talking. I'm Charles Wiz, and usually we have Tony Silva here, and our guest has been Nerida Rand. And this is episode 153, and you know where to contact us and listen to us. And uh, I guess we're, the next time we see each other, the semester will have started. So yes. a happy semester, beginning semester to you. Add to you as well. Okay. Take care. Thank you. Bye now. Bye, Charles.